And not only did he have a relationship with the government, but he had a role in the FBI. In this world, you look out for number one. If you, if any people, take that oath to the grave. These guys are on the streets, so they're involved in, in hustling. Welcome into the OG podcast. This is Scott Bernstein along with my partners in crime, Jimmy Bucciolato. Hello. And Roberto Beauchene, our venerable producer. Uh, we are very lucky on this episode. We're going to do a, a little bit of a deep dive into sports and gambling. And we have one of the true greats of investigative reporting uh, of the last, you know, 50 years or so, Dan Maldea, who wrote the Bible on sports and gambling in his book, Interference, which came out in 1989. We're just past the 30 year anniversary of that book. And uh, it was a really uh, it was a, a, a groundbreaking endeavor, broke so much news and brought so much to the surface. Uh, and we're honored to have Dan here uh, on the podcast. Dan, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure, Scott. I will do anything for you. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. We're uh, Dan and I kind of go back a decade or so in our uh, our research and writing about the Jimmy Hoffa case. Dan is not only the godfather of sports and gambling research; he is the the definitive voice on uh, the history, the life and times, and the assassination and kidnapping of Jimmy Hoffa. So uh, has ties here in Detroit where we're recording this. He was here at Ground Zero in 1975 when Hoffa disappeared and wrote all the seminal works on the uh, Hoffa disappearance. And then fast forward almost 15 years and uh, he dove into uh, the world of sports and gambling and just broke so much new ground with the book Interference. Dan, tell us a little bit about how you decided to write that book. You know, it started in Detroit. It started, I was, uh, Vince Persani was a longtime source of mine. Yep. And Vince Persani, the former chief investigator for the uh, Michigan State uh, Attorney General's officer at the time. Did you know Vince, Scott? I met him at the very end of his life. Um, Vince, Terrific guy. Vince was, guy. you know, for people that know the, uh, uh, the, the untouchables, you know, for if, the, uh, if Vince was the Elliot Ness to the Detroit mobs Al Capone. Uh, right. Vince was there, well a yeah. dogged investigator that pursued these guys for decades and decades and was the leading authority in law enforcement on the Detroit organized crime syndicate. He was a gangbuster. Well, for sure. well said. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the investigation, too, of the Detroit Lions by the Detroit Metropolitan Police Department was, you know, Vince was at the epicenter of that yeah. investigation as well. Anyway, interference. Um, Vince had said to me, listen, if you want to... If you want to uh, investigate uh, game fixing in the NFL, the guy you got to get to is uh, uh, Donald Dice Dawson. And I said, geez, he's the guy from the Len Dawson case, isn't he, in 1970? And he goes, yeah, yeah, he was the guy who allegedly had gotten close to Dawson and may have done some business with him. And so I had interviewed, uh, I had interviewed a, a lot of people revolving around the Kansas City Chiefs scandal, which a lot of people were talking about uh, leading up to the Sunday Super Bowl. And uh, Len Dawson, of course, was at the epicenter of all of that. Hall of Fame quarterback, the face of the of the, the Chiefs in the 60s and 70s. And right. just for people that don't know, just give them a little background, Dan. Uh, Dice Dawson was the biggest bookmaker in Detroit. He made his uh, home base out of the Fox and Hounds restaurant, which was an historic restaurant um, and bar on uh, Long Lake and Woodward. Right. Uh, he actually eventually bought the, the, the restaurant. And uh, he was busted on, I believe it was January 4th 
1970, which was the week leading into the Super Bowl between... Right. I um, think it was five days before the Super Bowl, yeah. Yeah, and Lenny Dawson was about to quarterback the Chiefs into the Super Bowl against the Minnesota Vikings. And while they were arresting Dice Dawson, uh, they searched his jacket pockets and they found a piece of paper with Len Dawson's name and number on it. Among others, among other NFL quarterbacks and everything else. Dawson was, he was, he was around a lot of people. Anyway, I had interviewed uh, Led Dawson at, at length about, about all of this, as well as Hank Stram, who was the head coach of the Chiefs. And because you cannot talk to anybody about sports gambling back during that period of time without without the Kansas City Chiefs and Len Dawson's activities being raised. Uh, Dawson was, you know, Len Dawson, who's no relation to Dice Dawson. Right, they're not related. Uh, he was disarming in, in how open he was with me. And he, and he took two polygraph tests, one at the time, and then he took another one after the 1983, uh, the, the television show, the PBS television show, uh, Frontline, premiered uh, in January of 1983, I think it was. And uh, the, the premiere show was on the unauthorized history of the NFL. And they were talking about games being allegedly fixed by some bookmakers and that they were talking about an unnamed head coach, an unnamed quarterback, and an unnamed defensive back. Uh, well, the unnamed head coach was Hank Stram, the unnamed quarterback was Len Dawson, and the unnamed uh, defensive back was Johnny Robinson, who all three of whom were in the, in the Hall of Fame. Football Hall of yeah. Fame and were investigated at length. Um, you know, right now, at this moment, there is no evidence showing that any of these three guys did anything illegal, immoral, or uh, unethical. And, you know, I kind of had to let them off the hook. But when I interviewed Len, uh, excuse me, Dice Dawson, I found him and I interviewed him. I think I had seven or eight interviews. I think it was on the seventh or eighth interview that he told me that he had personally participated in the fixing of no fewer than 32 NFL games. And he told me that he liked to work with quarterbacks because quarterbacks would come to him and they would say, what's the line on the game this week? And he'd say, uh, you know, you're favored by six points. And the quarterback would respond, well, we're not going to cover. And then the money would be bet. And he gave me a list of names. Um, Nighthawk, Do- Night, Night Train Dawson. Night Train Lane. Lane. I'm sorry. Dick Night, Dick Train, Night Train Lane. Lane. He I talked to him about Len Dawson when uh, Dice Dawson dropped, excuse me, I talked to him about Dice Dawson after Dawson dropped his name. And, you know, uh, Night Train just basically said, yeah, this is a guy who was around. But, you know, and, and, and Night Train insisted that he never did anything nefarious with Dice Dawson. But Dawson, you know, said to me repeatedly that he, and, and when we got together in person, uh, he said, and he told me this on tape, that he had personally participated in the fixing of no fewer than 32 NFL games. In my book, Interference, I allege that no fewer than 70 NFL games have been fixed over the years. Um, I know Bubba Smith had claimed that the 1969 Joe Namath Super Bowl was fixed, but I investigated, uh, you know, Carl Rosenblum, who was the owner of the uh, Baltimore Colts, uh, who died under tragic circumstances. Bubba Smith had alleged he'd bet a million dollars against his own team. Uh, I found the bookmaker who laid off Carol Rosenblum's bet, and he told me in no uncertain terms that Carol Rosenblum had bet the money on his own team. Uh, this was there was nothing nefarious involved in this. The 1969 Super Bowl was not fixed. So, in as much as I was going after to show. Um, uh, illegal operations going on in the NFL. I was also going out and trying to discredit those that were out there, like Bubba Smith's allegation about the 69 Super Bowl. 
So let's let's tie it back here to the Detroit Lions and Dice Dawson. Um, give people a little bit more perspective. So Dice Dawson uh, headquartered out of the Fox and Hounds, which is on Long Lake and Woodward. The Detroit Lions in at that time period in the fifties um, were their what what would be considered well, the their investigation pra- was in sixty three. Just to be clear, the investigation was right. in sixty three. But go ahead. And at that time, um, or in the in the fifties and sixties, the Detroit Lions um, you know practice facility, quote unquote, was at Bloomfield Hills Cranbrook, which is a, a high school campus. Um, as well as kind of like a museum and, and garden. And it's about uh, a half a mile uh, south of the Fox and Hounds. So whenever the Lions would be done with their practices, a lot of them would end up at the Fox and Hounds uh, eating dinner and, and drinking into the night with uh, Dice Dawson, as well as a number of uh, prominent Detroit organized crime figures. Um, the, 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 the names that get brought up most frequently are the Corrado brothers, um, Detroit Fats, Dominic Detroit Fats Corrado, his brother, Anthony Tony the Bull Corrado, and then the infamous Jackaloni brothers, uh, Tony Jack and Billy Jack, who... Who were uh, central to the 63 investigation. Yeah. Right. So can you talk a little bit about um, what you investigated in terms of uh, Bobby Lane, who was you know probably oh, the most famous Detroit Lion other than Barry Sanders... Um, was the greatest quarterback the Lions have ever had up until right now with Matt Stafford. I have actually, I mean, I have not had death threats uh, on me since I was investigating Roland McMaster during yeah. the Jimmy Hoffa Jimmy case. Hoffa. I mean, that's the where Lone's the bulk play, of my play. death threats came from, was from Roland McMaster during my investigation of the Hoffa. The exception is when I started investigating Bobby Lane. When I started, wow. I, I, I actually got death threats over the phone. Now, you don't take death threats seriously when they come over the phone because, I mean, why would they tell you if they're, you know, if they're going to come, they're going to come. But I got one of the most, I, it was almost laughable, and I recorded that conversation when the guy called me up and he told me who was going to kill me, how he's going to kill me, <laughs> and everything else. He had actually paid somebody to come and whack me. Anyway, so the, the investigation, um, which was in 1963, which ended up with uh, some suspensions, Alex Karras, who was a lion, Paul Horning, Paul Horning from the, from the Green from Bay, the, uh, but Green this Bay act- Packers. And Horning wound up in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Right. Karras did it because well, he just got, Horning he did- was contrite, but Karras, you know, said, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, this is hypocrisy because the NFL is, is a beneficiary of all yeah. this gambling that's going on. Karras actually just got elected a couple weeks ago. Oh, he was elected. He's, he's to the going Hall in now, but I, everyone's I, saying I was the, not aware of that. Thank everyone's you. saying yeah. the reason that it took fifty years is because of the gambling scandal. But let's go yeah, back but, to. So, I like Harris very much. I I I I, I grew up with him as conversations with him. George Papadopoulos with the the Webster Show. Oh, that was my uh, that. that was my point of reference for Alex Harris. But uh, so let's talk a little about. So the investigation, the NFL investigation, was nineteen sixty three, but they were investigating. Uh, activity and behavior that was going on in the late 1950s, and that's what you kind of dove into with Bobby Lane, Dice Dawson. Tell us a little bit about what you found. Well, what, I, what my investigation was about, um, my, my investigation was basically a history of uh, the owners, the owners of the NFL, and how closely they were tied to sports gambling from the outset, from the from the 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 inception of the National Football League in 1920. And going through the Maras and the Roonies and the Bidwells and how, you know, these guys, these guys were, you know, gamblers. These guys were, they were high rollers, gamblers. high rollers. They, I think they called them sportsmen at the time. Yeah. And um, essentially, you know, this came to a point where it kind of started to impact on the coaching staffs and on the football players themselves. I mean, as you know, probably better than anybody. Uh, you know the money wasn't. It was quite different back then. These yeah. guys had these guys had 
you know, they had off-season jobs. They had day jobs. They were selling insurance. They were lawyers. They were doctors. They were, you know, ditch diggers, whatever. These guys had other jobs during the during the rest of the year, sold cars. Um, and, um, and, and, and because they weren't making that much money and they were in such a high-profile existence where they had to spend so much money, a lot of these guys needed extra money. And so because of gambling and because there were bookmakers like Dice Dawson out there and others, um, Jimmy Buchakaris, do you remember him? Yeah, so Alex Karras, just to give a little more color, Alex Karras co-owned a very famous bar in Detroit called the Lindell AC. It actually was the first ever sports bar in the United States and invented the concept really? of a sports bar. I and did not know that. Karras and Jimmy Karras, both Greek, uh, owned the, uh, the Lindell AC, which... Similar to the Fox and Hounds, which was about a half a mile away from the Lions practice facility, the Lindell AC was about a half a mile or a mile away from where the Lions played their regular season games at home at the, at the old Tiger Stadium. So right. it was a, a big hangout for, for athletes, gangsters, just regular fans. And uh, there was a, a, a Jackaloni back book that was being run out of the Lindell AC, uh, overseen by, by, Butch, uh, by Boucher Karras. You are a. This is why I say Scott Bernstein is the world's expert on the Detroit Mafia. Okay, we all, we all, we all, we all bend and bow to Scott Bernstein when it comes to the Detroit here, here. Mafia. Just trying well, to another, give. I had, I had a connection. Another, we were another to, tidbit on that was that um, a guy we know from Detroit radio, Terry Foster, right. a legend in Detroit radio. His mother was a waitress, and he grew up there. And, and, and Terry would, he, grew he up as a busboy, yeah, right. as a busboy and, and as a, a, a hamburger flipper. Well, what I had, the way I had gotten into this was I, uh, I knew a relative of Jimmy Buchakaris in Akron, Ohio, which is where I grew up. And uh, I was able to develop that person into a source, which led to me getting some documents uh, about, you know, sp- very specific documents from the Detroit Police Department about the 63 gambling of very detailed uh, intelligence reports. And um, I think Vince may have had something to do with Vince Persani may have had something to do with that as well. And um, um, they showed how closely tied uh, the, you know, the local mafia guys, the, the guys you met, the Corrados and the Jackalones, were getting with the uh, players. Uh, uh, Wayne, what's his Wayne name? Walker. Wayne, Wayne Walker. Wayne Walker. Wayne Walker was one of the targets of that, of that whole thing. And he was pretty unrepentant about it as well. And, um, and in the midst of all of that, this big investigation was launched. I don't think they ever proved that anybody was fixing games or anything. And I don't recall Dice Doss's being name being connected to that. Um, but in my it, it, the overall in the book, along with alleging that there were 70 games that had been fixed in the history of the NFL, I also alleged that no fewer than 26 past and present NFL team owners had had documented business ties or personal relationships with uh, a variety of, of, of mafia guys. And it became sort of understood that the connection between gambling, sports gambling, illegal and legal gambling, where it existed, say, in Las Vegas, where you had the sports books. Um, and at the that same it, time, you had the, the mafia that had control of all the Las Vegas casinos and hotels. Exactly. And and you guys from Detroit would know all about that yep. because, you know, you had a whole slew of Detroit mob guys who wound up going down in a major, yep. couple of major indictments. The Frontier indictments and the Aladdin. Because of that. Um, 
you know, I felt that, I, in fact, I, I was predicting that the illegal gambling economy um, was was going to become uh, was become, become a national issue. And then what happened just a couple of years ago that the United States Supreme Court has legalized gambling across the country. And I went on Nightline on September 11th, 1989, and I said uh, I was on with um, – uh, I was on with uh, Warren Welsh, the chief of NFL security, and with uh, uh, Mar- Roxy Roxborough, Michael Roxy Roxborough, the, the top odds maker in Las Vegas. And I said, you watch one of these days, you're going to see the NFL team owners say that we want the gambling right in the stadium mm-hmm. uh, where you can make a bet on you can bet right, make a bet on the game you're watching or any other game that's going on simultaneously or any futures and prop bets that it's going to be happening and it's happening right now right now here in Washington our our uh the the owner of the I don't want to say our I don't want to even claim this team <laughs> but the Washington Redskins uh, owner uh Dan Snyder has said in his new stadium he wants he wants the technology available where the fans can bet can engage in sports gambling right in the stadium I was right then and I'm right now as to what happened because I took a ton of grief after I said that on Nightline that night and it's turning out to be true because of the Supreme Court decision. Look at that foresight. Anyway, uh, we, that we keep saying ago. that why, why, why didn't, uh, you know, you had a lot of people. You had the strike force against organized crime. You had the FBI. You had the whole Justice Department apparatus. Why didn't this stuff ever come out? The other thing I'm claiming in, in, in claim interference was no fewer than 50 legitimate investigations of corruption in the National Football League were either suppressed or just flat out killed as a result of a sweetheart relationship between NFL security, which as you guys know is the internal police force within the league, and a variety of federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies. And a lot of the people and, that work for NFL security are ex-federal law enforcement. Absolutely, absolutely correct. And the 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 advent. The beginning, the the onset of the NFL security was as a result of the 1963 gambling scandal that you were talking about, Scott, with regard to Alice Karras and Paul Horning back in 1963. That's when Pete Rozelle said, okay, now it's time for us to come up with our own police department. But the purpose of NFL security is to root out corruption and to expose it so that everybody knows about it and it's, and it, and, uh, and, and it's, uh, it's out in the sunshine. Uh, their job is to root out the corruption and then tamp it down, cover it up, so that they can protect the multi-billion dollar investments of the NFL team owners. That's what's happening right now. Let me just touch on two things related to uh, Detroit, and then I want to move on real quick to the sure. San Francisco 49ers and the DeBartolo, the DeBartolo family. But uh, So you reported in your book about Karras um, in a chapter called The Party Bus, which we all find just unbelievably fascinating and, and compelling, <laughs> that uh, there was a... If you want that report, incidentally, Scott, I'll be happy to share it. <laughs> I think I've actually seen it. Um, okay. So you had a situation where uh, the Detroit Lions players and the Detroit mobsters became so close that they were actually uh, traveling back and forth from games together. The yeah. Detroit Lions would have uh, kind of carte blanche in the, uh, within the organization. They had field passes. They were allowed to stand on the sidelines during the games. They got box seats and whatnot. Um, and it, it reached a point where I believe the Jackalones came up with a concept for all the, the local high rollers in Detroit, that he, uh, that they, Billy and Tony Jack, uh, custom fitted a bus with gambling 
uh, blackjack tables, dice tables. Uh, they brought food, drink, prostitutes, and they it was would a pagan idolatry on four wheels. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So they would drive to the away games, whether it be in Chicago or Cleveland or Green Bay. And then a lot of the Lions, after the game, would jump on the bus to drive back to Detroit. Yeah. So and, talk a little about that. And that and, and have, and that, you know, times were different. But what scares me is that, I mean, the as a result of the creation of NFL security by Pete Rozelle in 1963, uh, and you had a legendary uh, 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 police officer from the Los Angeles Police Department's um, uh, organized Crime Intelligence Division. Uh, God, I forget his name off the top of my head, but he became the first guy. He wasn't there for very long, but then he was replaced by two of the Justice Department's legends in uh, the Strike Force Against Organized Crime, the uh, Bill Hunley, who was the head of the Organized Crime and Racketeering Section, and by his partner, um, Bill Bob Bittman, I guess was, I'm trying to think it was Bob or his Bill, his son, Bob was, I think it was Bob who was first, I'm sorry, it was Bill who was first, William who was first, and then Bob, his son, followed afterwards, also a legend in the Justice Department. And they started connecting with mafia guys to try to figure out whether there were movements in the line. They thought by dealing with mob guys like Gil Beckley, who was the top bookmaker in the country, you know, that he would tell them if there were there were movements in the line, because the theory is, is that odds makers and bookmakers want an honest game because it screws up their their calculations if it's not. But, you know, I think we've I, I think what was proven it, I was uh, let me put it this way. Jack Ken Cook, the former owner of the Washington Redskins, yep. sued Washingtonian magazine for libel. And the case revolved around uh, a, a crack that uh, Jack Cook made to his chauffeur. Um, and he said that don't bet off NFL games because they can't be fixed. And when they reported that in Washingtonian magazine, Cook filed his libel suit and I was brought on as an expert witness. And my job was to come on and say that not only have NFL games, have there been attempts to fix NFL games, but that NFL games have indeed been fixed. And I was asked to bring on law enforcement people to to attest that NFL games can be fixed as 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 the chauffeur claimed. I brought in three, four law enforcement people who said not only can they be fixed, but they have been fixed. And um, including the head of Project Layoff, which was the IRS uh, Criminal Intelligence Division's investigation of eight allegedly fixed games uh, in 1980, I think it was in 1980, uh, by the same two referees who were allegedly paid $100,000 for each game from Tony Salerno and the New York Genovese crime family. Another tie to the Hoffa case. <laughs> Another tie to the Hoffa case, indeed. And um, and so, as a consequence of this, uh, there was this big investigation. But then the IRS was managed to invest. They were betting at the state. They they had the uh, they had the outcomes of the games in advance of the games taking place. And they were betting at the same casino, at the sportsbook, at the same casino, the Barbary Coast in Las Vegas. And they were betting so much money, they were actually moving the, the national line. And why, what happened? What's, what happened? Why was this whole thing? The IRS has this information. These IRS agents have this information. When the game is going to be played, what the outcome is going to be in advance of the game. Why does the investigation get derailed? 
because the IRS agents were betting on the games themselves <laughs> because they had the information in advance. That's what happened. Yeah. And so once again, it's very difficult to it's very difficult to have these investigations to keep them intact for any length of time. God, I could go on for hours about these cases. So just, one, just, one last thing yeah. uh, I want to touch on about Detroit, and then we're going to move uh, on to the 49ers. Sure. So from what I can understand, Dice Dawson admitted to using Bobby Lane to fix Detroit Lions games. Uh, kind of? You know, <laughs> having to throw, you know, having, uh, risking being, th- have my life threatened again. Yeah, that's exactly what he said. Bobby Lane was at the top. And he told me a number of other quarterbacks as well, but Bobby Lane was the one I made the biggest and, and, deal of because Bobby Lane was so well known. And is this, uh, is this mythology or is this true that it, it at least it seems like from what I've read and heard and talked to people that are kind of quote unquote in the know or or new people that were in the know that the the league office of the NFL contacted the Lions and said you need to trade Bobby Lane out of Detroit because of this nefarious activity that he was engaging in and, and then that's where, what where precipi- to? Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh right? and that's what precipitated uh, the trade and then Bobby Lane made a famous statement to the press as he was leaving town uh, where he said the Lions and aren't going to win anything for fifty years who was his who was his backup quarterback at Pittsburgh. Uh, refresh me. Len Dawson. Oh, okay. Right. Interesting. Uh, and then one last anecdote, and I'm not sure if I got this out of your book or if I've gotten out of my uh, other research, but the guy, one of the guys that replaced uh, Lane under center for the Lions was a quarterback named Milt Plum. Yeah, a lot the Browns. Of, yeah. And a lot Detroit, of Detroit, and then the Browns, the Browns got it from Detroit. Yeah. And, and, oh, I'm and, sorry, was it the Detroit that got it from the Browns? Which was? I'm not sure. This was way before my time. But the, the it word, was right. It was in the middle of my childhood. I mean, we, <laughs> we, we looked up to Milt Plum. I mean, he played with Jimmy Brown, for God's sake. But he was, he was a man of a lot of integrity. He was a man of a lot of integrity. And is it true? Have you heard or did I it's read it the, from you? It's in the book. Okay, it's in the book. Dan talks about it. It's in, in book. your book where, where a lot of the Lions who had been kind of in cahoots with Dawson and. Uh, uh, Karras and Bobby Lane in fixing games, they still wanted to fix games with Milt Plum, and Milt Plum wouldn't wouldn't go along with the plan. Right. I think that's in my book. Right. I think that's in my book. We, you know, Milt Plum was a straight shooter, just like Frank Ryan was after him. Yeah. Well, that's kind of interesting. So we're going to switch uh, switch gears now. Jimmy's going to uh, ask you some questions about uh, the 49ers. Yeah, just... uh, Hey, Jimmy. Hi. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Can you tell us about um, the research, research in your book regarding the... Uh, DiBartolo family since the 49ers were just in the Super Bowl. Super Bowl, yeah. Yeah, tell us about... Well, I was right. If they, if they had won the Super Bowl, I was going to come out with a whole bunch of stuff about that, but and I still, decided the family not still to pile on. I mean, that, that's the most remarkable thing of all time was the, the was DiBartolo Sr. Uh, getting ownership of the... Um, of the uh, of San Francisco 49ers after repeated attempts to get a major league baseball team for which he was denied because of his ties to uh, bookmakers, gamblers, and mafia guys. And uh, I mean, DeBartolo Sr. was on the uh, DOJ's uh, principal subjects uh, organized crime principal subjects list. Uh, he was linked with uh, Meyer Lansky and Carlos Marcello and Santo Traficani, as well as a, a slew of. Those are, ma- those are major. Canfield, Canfield, Ohio, which was in between Youngstown and uh, and Alliance, and um, which is near Akron, Kent, where I went to school. And um, uh, you know, he built the Summit Mall in, in Akron, Ohio. I think that was I think that was probably his first. He was the shopping. And just for people to know, he was the kind the of the pioneer of uh, of building shopping malls around America. Made right, his fortune right. that way. And had a racetrack. He owned, he owned racetracks. Uh, he was um, 
he he had a hundred thousand dollar line of credit at Caesar's Palace. Uh, uh, I'm just looking at my notes did, here. Did he own the Pittsburgh four times for for the ownership of baseball franchise? Yeah, did he not own the uh, an NHL team at one point too? Uh, he owns the Penguins, P- Pittsburgh yeah. Penguins. Yeah, that's what and I. They own the USFL, Pittsburgh Maulers. Right. And uh, I think that I think there was some there was something about the ownership of that after the Bartolo Jr. got into trouble. And I think the daughter started uh, being the front person on the family business. This and I don't know exactly how this all worked out, but, um, you know, I this interference uh, was such a controversial book when it came out. I mean, I am not a sports writer. And I came into um, a very unpleasant uh, situation where I, I viewed, with respect to sports writers, I just kind of viewed, you know, the profession of sports reporting as the whorehouse of American journalism. And because these guys had to maintain the goodwill of the teams they were covering, and if they didn't, if they departed from that, <clears throat> they were going to be, they were going to lose their beat, and they would uh, potentially lose their jobs. And so as a consequence of all of that, I was under such incredible scrutiny from the sports media, even more so than uh, from, the, uh, from organized crime people or from people inside football or anything like that. I mean, you had, you had people, say like Joe Brown, who was the chief of public relations for the NFL, who was coordinating attacks against me and everything else. Anyway, I digress. With regard to the Bartolo, he was basically a mob guy who was an owner of an NFL team. I talked to Jack Danahy, who was the head of NFL security at the time, about how he got through. And Jack Danahy said, that's the one thing I can't talk about because I, he said, he said even, even he doesn't understand completely how, how DeBartolo was able to get a, get a sports team because of his mafia ties. And DeBartolo bought the team in 1977. He kind of gave it over to his son, Eddie DeBartolo Jr., to run it. And Eddie DeBartolo Jr. ended up, you know, being one of the best owners in professional sports, won five Super Bowls. Uh, But now, even though the the, the team is still within the DeBartolo family, it's been passed on to uh, Edward Sr.'s daughter and her husband, John York. So that's right, the current status. But it's still in, you know, it's still still, uh, still an asset of the DeBartolo empire. Yeah, 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 for sure. Oh, yeah. No answers or buts about that. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I want to ask you also, we're talking about NFL owners. Uh, In your books, you've written extensively about the Kennedy family. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, this isn't in in interference, by the way, but you talk about Clint Murchison and the uh, Hunt family. From the Cowboys? Yeah, what are your thoughts about... And the Chiefs? That's right. Uh, What are your thoughts about theories that they were involved in the conspirators in the JFK assassination? Well, I was the first one to write in the Hoffa Wars in 1978 that um, I, for, I, I alleged that uh, Hoffa, Jimmy Hoffa, the boss of the Teamsters Union, uh, Carlos Marcello, the mafia boss of New Orleans, and Santo Traficani, the mafia boss of Tampa, Florida, had arranged and executed John Kennedy's murder in 1963. And I took a ton of grief for that when that came out in the summer of 1978. Uh, 42 years ago, and um, but then the U.S. House Select Committee on Assassination started its investigation like three, four months after my book came out, and they started investigating organized crimes connection to the murder. And a year later, a year after my book came out in July 1979, uh, the committee concluded that Hoffa, Marcello, and Traficani had motive, means, and opportunity 
to kill the president in 1963 and the chief counsel of the committee, Bob Blakey, the world's expert on organized crime. Wrote the RICO Act. Uh, wrote the RICO Act, exactly, Scotty. And Bob Blakey said, the mob did it. It's a historical fact. And so I was first to make that claim. I stand by it. And um, um, I, I think, in fact, you know, Professor Blakey's right. The mob did it. It's a historical fact. And the names of the, the mob bosses that he just threw out there, Carlos Marcello and Santo Traficante, we can throw in Meyer Lansky. These were the people that DOJ was alleging that DeBartolo Sr. W- was helping launder right. millions and millions of dollars of, of racketeering money. Right, exactly, exactly. So, so you don't think Murchison or Hunt were, I mean, they were connected to those guys, but you don't think... Oh, yeah, no, no, as a, I mean, the, the Los Angeles Times did like a 56-part series in the Clint Murchison and his organized crime ties. It was, it was done by Jack Tobin, who was a great reporter out there. And, um, you know, it, you know the, 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 the connections among people like the Murchisons... Hold on here, let me... It's been so long since that book came out. Hold on, let's see if I can find it. It stands up, let me tell you. I was going through it right in the lead up to the Super Bowl to write some stuff for my Gangster Report site about the the Chiefs and the 49ers. And I'm telling you, it's the Bible when it comes to, to gambling oh, so and much stuff pro sports. Yeah, Dan, amazing. this was such an amazingly researched book. Yeah, it was amazing. This well, See, what had happened, I was lucky in that I got... Um, when 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 the Frontline story came out in 1983, the, the premiere of the PBS show Frontline came out with their unauthorized history of the NFL. They took there was such a, an onslaught, an avalanche of criticism against them. They came, they came to me, uh, and they said, "Here, we're going to give everything we've done to you." It was a couple of hundred thousand dollars worth of research and documents and everything else videotaped uh, interviews and they said here it's yours what's it talk about so that's what i started with i started from there and um uh you know it was unbelievable i mean it's it's um you know i again i I keep pointing to the media but you know i kind of think that you know during that period of time when gambling was illegal i mean you know organized crime and the illegal betting economy kind of became an adjunct to the first amendment because of the insistence by the sports media to print and broadcast the betting line, to having these odds makers, handicappers, you know, predicting the outcomes of games, and so the the adv- the, uh, the the rise of Jimmy the Greek, and that might exactly. be dating exactly. some people, but you know, when I was a kid, you turn on uh, the NFL CBS. pregame show or the postgame show or the halftime show, and they had a guy named Jimmy the Greek who was uh, kind of a mobbed up gambling uh, wizard who would right. sit there and talk about the lines. This was in the 70s right. and 80s. Right, and his downfall came, I think, during the 1980s. He was having yeah. dinner at Duke Zebert's restaurant here in Washington, D.C., and he made some racist remark about He was about, drunk uh, and... Yeah. yeah, he was and done. That after, yeah. ended. That ended his uh, his career as a pro- prognosticator of NFL yep. games. I'm looking at a thing here. There's a 1980 AFT report, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms report, which let me just quick quote. It just says Murchison is firmly entrenched with the national with national mafia figures. Mm-hmm. Um, he was involved with Marcello. He was his name was found in Alan Dorfman's address book when Alan Dorfman got whacked. Um, he was heavy. He was a heavy gambler with Gil Beckley, who once again was the top bookmaker on the East Coast in the United States at the time. They called him the brain. He was also in business with Jerry Katita, 
uh, Marcello. He was doing business with Bobby Baker, who was at the heart of a big political scandal here in Washington. And then I believe Beckley got murdered. Beckley disappeared. Yeah. <laughs> I think Beckley disappeared in 1969, 1970, yeah. I think. It was never seen, uh, heard from again. I, I, I spent a lot of time with his, uh, his chief lieutenant, Mar- Marty Skolarov. And even Marty had no idea what happened to him. But it was clear that, you know, that that Gil Beckley, well, Gil Beckley was a guy who was approached by Bill Hunley, the head of NFL security, to uh, to find out whether, you know, games were being fixed or whether unnatural money was showing up uh, because unnatural money was showing up on the lines. And so it could have been that cooperation between um, between Beckley and Hunley. Uh, uh, with essentially with the law enforcement community, which may have led to his his untimely demise. Next to Jimmy Hoffa, that's one of the biggest disappearances of all time. Gilbert the Brain Beckley, and he thought... Gilbert like, the Brain Beckley. Very good, Scott. Yeah. You really know this stuff. And D- Dice, uh, what Dice Dawson was to the Midwest in Detroit, uh, Gilbert the Brain Beckley was to the East to the Coast, country. New York. The whole country, yeah. yeah. But he was based out of uh, the uh, New England area, uh, yeah. New York. And I, I just want to point out that not only were Murchison and Hunt connected to mob guys, but they held a pathological hatred of John Kennedy. Yeah. So it just is a kind of an interesting aspect of the story. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the guys who was very close to them, there was a guy, there was a, a restaurant down there called, God, what was it called? The Egyptian or something like yes, that? Yes, it, it was called, the, it was um, in Dallas. It's still, in I think Dallas. it's still he there. Was, he was the first visitor, Jack Ruby guy, yeah. after Jack... Ruby right. uh, whacked uh, Lee Harvey Oswald in the basement of the uh, Dallas police headquarters. Yeah, right. I think it's uh, you know and Jack Ruby who was family. completely and totally mobbed up. Yeah, even uh, you know in, in Chicago and Detroit and down in Dallas. Uh, and, and 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 Jack Ruby, his his boss when he was with the Chicago Waste Handlers Union was Alan Dorfman's stepfather, Paul, Paul Red Dorfman. Red Dorfman, yep. And uh, and Alan Dorfman, of course, was represented in The Irishman uh, as that uh, as the young kid who uh, you know got his car shot up and was the head of the insurance company that was basically running the health and welfare and pension funds of the Teamsters Union. Who ended up uh, with an untimely demise? I'm sorry, Scott. Did you like the movie or not? Me, I thought it was great cinema, terrible history. Where, where, did yeah. you like the movie at least? I liked it. I didn't love it. I thought it was good. Um, I thought it was talking, talking about the Irishman and Casino. No. Talking about the Irishman here. No, uh, I, so. I I thought it was you know the acting was outstanding, the directing was outstanding, um, but I yes, agree. there were there was quite a lot to be desired when when you're talking about you know historical accuracy. Oh yeah, I mean if if you could suspend belief and just understand that what you're seeing is garbage, garbage <laughs> history. I really I like the movie. I, I've seen it now seven times, and uh, I've had it on an endless loop uh, here in my office from time to time, where I would just have it on in the background. There was something comforting and, and, and like a walk down memory lane watching this movie because even though there was so much trash in it, it still followed a basic history of something that uh, that all of us who started investigating the Teensters back in the seventies uh, remembered, and I had started in nineteen seventy four. Well, didn't, didn't you, you have know, a conversation with Robert De Niro where you warned him that that I this did. story was not I credible. Did. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, for about 31 years, I have hosted a dinner here in Washington for for authors, for published authors, and I get anywhere from 80 to 100 authors, and it's twice a year. It's the first Tuesday of June, first Tuesday of December, and like I said, we've been doing this for 31 years, and so uh, De Niro, there had been friends of mine who had been trying to get De Niro and I together since. He first bought the option to the film to, uh, to bought the option to the book uh, "Heard You Paint Houses" by Charlie Brandt, and I think it was 2007, 2008. 
And but you know, De Niro was always the busy one, of course. I mean, <laughs> I would have dropped everything to see him. <laughs> but uh, a friend of mine, um, in fact, I think he's a friend of Scott, uh, Scott's too, uh, Gus Rousseau, uh, yep. who uh, is here uh, nearby Baltimore. Here. Great writer. Great writer, uh, great organized crime outfit. expert, great uh, author, great uh, you know crime reporter. Anything you want to know about and the outfit he, or Sidney Corsett? He uh, and he and De Niro uh, were friendly. Uh, he, uh, Gus was always trying to sell him one of his one of his projects on the mob, and so uh, Gus told De Niro about my author's dinner, saying that I would be there. And so he said, "Geez, I'd like to come to this." And so he wanted to meet the other authors. A lot of talent there. Like I said, eighty to a hundred authors to come. I think there were eighty some that night. And we kept it real quiet that that Dodaro was coming. And he came, and he was terrific. He was friendly. He was a good sport. He was he he must have take he must have posed for five hundred pictures that night from everybody. Of course, everyone wanted a picture take with the great Bob De Niro. And then as the crowd started to thin out, De Niro, Gus, and I went to a corner table at the restaurant where we always have our dinners, the Old Europe in Glover Park here in Washington. And, you know, and, and De Niro started talking about it. We were getting along fine until he said, you know, you know, I heard you paint houses as a definitive book on what happened to Jimmy Hoffman. Oh, geez. And I've been a critic <laughs> of that book since it came out wow. in 2004 when Eric Shawn was first shepherding it for Fox News to the, the elements um, of the publishing industry and helped get that book on the New York Times bestseller list. And that really, I mean, with all due respect to to uh, to Scotty on the Hoffa case, I play second banana to nobody when it comes. You to You don't the have Hoffa to say all due respect. I'll, I'll be the first one to say that nobody <laughs> and, plays second and, banana to damn all and day. So I told I told De Niro. I said, you know, with respect to you, Bob, you're getting conned. You're getting conned here by this guy. This is not the book you want to you want to embrace. He may. I thought that I thought that the way they should play this thing was they should have played it like they did in Casino, where they where you had a real story, a real life story. Lefty Rosenthal, Jerry Rosenthal, Tony Spilatro, Alan Glick, you know the whole Stardust crowd. And they just fictionalized it. And it was very open about it. They said, basically, this is based on a real story. What De Niro did was from the beginning, he was saying, this is the true story of what happened to Jimmy Hoffa. And they kept the real names in there, which really upset Jack Goldsmith, because Jack, who wrote in Hoffa Shadow, a very fine book. We had Jack on which, the podcast which came a out last September. And is, I think it's been banging on the doors of the bestseller list as well. And Jack wrote a really excellent book about his stepfather, uh, Chucky O'Brien, who, of course, was alleged to have driven the car that took Hoffa to the scene of his murder. Uh, it wasn't until and I believe that because that's what federal my federal sources were telling me until uh, 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 Phil Moscato Sr., uh, one of the mob guys who was implicated in the overall uh, conspiracy against Hoffa told me in no uncertain terms that it wasn't Chucky O'Brien who was driving the car. It was Vito Giacalone. Yep. And I think Scott, who has has an excellent theory as to what happened to Hoffa, saying basically that it was an inside thing with, with the Detroit people, that it was Vito Giacalone. I think you agree with that, Scott. Yeah, I, I have no doubt in, fact, in my I mind. I think that. you developed that with your own sources, apart yeah. from mine. And and that the that the murder was at uh, Carl Licata's house. And, you know, when Scott talks, I, I take it seriously. So I, Actually, I've done some reporting in the last couple of weeks that kind of fly in the face of that theory where I have had another person that's come forward and, and has, has told me that uh, he was killed at Lenny Schultz's house 
So I'm still. Yeah, and McMaster I'm, was somehow connected. Yes, to and, that McMa- and McMaster was tied well, to that's, that. Whenever McMaster's Day comes up, that perks my ears up because from day one, I believe that Roland McMaster was involved in this murder conspiracy. As a reporter, I mean, you got to go with the facts. Responsible for disposing of Hoffa's body. Obviously, all of us, you know, and we're talking to you, Dan. You you said it too. We all have to suspend disbelief with the Irishman. Right. Was there anything in the movie that you saw that you said, wow, they actually got that right, or that something you were surprised at or intrigued I'll tell you, one of the most dramatic moments, my favorite moment in the movie is the most dramatic. I mean, I had chills when I saw it, and it was the scene uh, where uh, Sharon comes down, De Niro comes down, and he goes up to Russell Buffalino, uh, Joe Pesci, and and he's having breakfast, and he says, you want cornflakes or you want total? And De Niro says, I want the total. And so then they're having a conversation. We're going to go. We're going to. We're going to go to Fort uh, Port Port Clinton. What, what's there at Port Clinton? A plane. Uh, what? What's where are we going on the plane? You're going. Where's it going? Detroit. Uh, you know, I had to get you involved in this, Frank, and because I knew you would try to stop it. Now, you know, Frank had 12 hours the night before to stop this thing because he knew Hoffa was going to get whacked. So, do you think that's an actual possibility, or what? I still I still believe that Frank Sharon was involved in the overall conspiracy. I do. I, I think that one of the reasons I, I think Hoffa definitely trusted uh, Sharon. I know that as a fact from my research from going way, way back. And um, um, I just don't think that he was there. In fact, I know he wasn't the guy who actually killed Hoffa. I mean, um, Scott and, and, and Jimmy, they can back me up on this or not. But when people ask me, well, was Frank Sheeran, is his story bullshit or is it not or whatever? I always, my brain always goes back to the page in uh, Heard You Paint Houses where there's the list of the FBI list. He's listed in like on the right. commission. He, he's the only non-Italian guy yeah. on that list. Uh, that's that's nonsense. Right? I mean, that he, there is, he is not a member. He was not a, a member of the commission. In fact, Jack Goldsmith really... And that's really, really the one that, 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 that document that he's referring to, Dan, is really the one kind of. Uh, it was the he, indictment. It was right. the indictment and Rudy Giuliani a, put out, right? Right, and it's something that the the people that support the theory, the Charlie Brands of the world, that they can really cling to this. Like this is a government document that lists Frank Sheeran's name on there with all of the the, right. the big right. shot. Right. Mob. Now, now let me ask this: that, that in, ter- well. in, in terms of the mob world, though, would yeah. they have seen that document, and all of a sudden that puts Frank Sheeran higher? than he was ever supposed to be because he was on that document. All I can tell you is that the uh, Washington Post did an investigation of that. The story came out in, I think, in early January. And uh, I think the, the, uh, the author's name was Manuel Ruiz. I, I forget his last name. And he did a really, really good job of looking into that particular matter. And his conclusion was that this was misleading that uh, about Sharon's role with the mob. And um, I mean, Sharon was certainly close to uh, Russell Buffalino. No answers or buts about that. But, you know, Frank Sheeran had his own hatchet man. And that hatchet man's name was Charlie Charlie Allen. Allen, Charlie Allen was the guy people really, really feared. I mean, Charlie Allen was the guy who was going out killing people, you know, you know, the guy, Frank Sheeran was confessing to crimes he did not commit. He did not kill Hoffa. He did not kill Joey Gallo. He did not kill Sal Bergoglio. And You're kidding, among, man. I, the rest of these things, I don't know. These when, when he was growing up in the mob and stuff like that, you know, I don't know about those things. 
But I know that he didn't kill Joey Gallo. He didn't kill Sal Bergoglio. And certainly he didn't kill Jimmy There's Hoffa. There's a group of FBI agents that I know that are putting together uh, a magazine article for a kind of an internal law enforcement um, periodical that gets passed around, I think, on a bi-monthly basis. And the premise of what tickle they're the wire, tickle the wire. Or yeah, I believe, it's, I believe it's I believe it's going to be tickle the wire. And the premise of what they're it's three FBI three retired FBI agents, and they're they're co-authoring it together. And the premise of the piece is that not only did Frank Sharon not kill Jimmy Hoffa or Gallo or Perculio, but that in fact Jimmy or but the the premise of the piece is that Frank Sharon didn't kill anybody ever. That they they can't right. they can't find one homicide that's linked to to Frank Sharon. So well, in fact, just, he didn't just, paint houses. They just interviewed uh, Glenn Seitz, uh, who was uh, Sheeran's attorney through much of this in the early days. And Glenn basically says that he, he did not kill anybody. And also, I was the one who got John Zeitz's manuscript before Charlie Brandt wrote his book with, uh, with uh, Frank Sheeran. Uh, he, Sheeran had another co-author back in the late 90s named John Zeitz. And John Zeitz came up with a manuscript. And he spent a lot of time interviewing uh, Frank Sheeran on videotape. And before John died, he gave me uh, all of his documents and all the tapes. You can get those. You can see those on YouTube, I believe. Uh, well, right now I've, I've, I made I make a I made a strategic mistake in that I I, I had started. I was trying to get the widow uh, of John Zeitz because she, as far as I'm concerned, she owns the rights to this stuff. I just I was just thrilled to be the administrator of these 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 documents. And in one of the videos, the only thing I really asked for was a one minute um, uh, clip from the video in which Frank Sheeran says, uh, you know, Dan Moldea and Steve Brill, who was, uh, who was another writer who wrote a book about Hoff and the Teensters back in 1978 when my book came out, that, we, that Steve and I were conned by the FBI to believe that the mafia and the Teamsters had killed uh, Jimmy Hoffa, when in fact it was John Mitchell, the former Attorney General of the United States, who was responsible for engineering the murder of Jimmy Hoffa. I mean, he actually says this on videotape, <laughs> and the the manuscript is absolutely, absolutely laughable, where he's talking about how the killer of Jimmy Hoffa, Sal Bergoglio's in the car, Chucky e. O'Brien's in the car, Hoffa's in the car, and then this Vietnamese hitman comes out <laughs> from underneath this this fake, uh, um, specially made back seat where he comes out of this little trap door and shoots off uh, through, the, through the front seat, for, through the pe- front passenger seat. And, uh, I mean, it's a laugh a minute. And This, this is, is Frank, just so and, people understand, this is Frank Sheeran, the Robert De Niro character in the movie The Irishman, before... For which Netflix has paid $200 right. million, dollars, right. Before he wrote the book claiming that he killed Jimmy Hoffa, this is the Robert De Niro character in that movie going on tape, you know, right. five, six, seven years before he wrote that book, spinning other lies. <laughs> Yeah, it was, it's unbelievable. And again, I have the manuscript. This is all going to come out. It's not coming out exactly the way I wanted it to come out, but it, it's all going to be coming out. So we're going to wrap and, up here. Oh, sorry, Dan. Yeah. Go ahead. Finish. No, no. I'm just saying that, the, the, you know, all of these things are all of these things are going to come out. And this is all good history. Listen, that's why I say I, I, I wish I, De Niro, I wish he wouldn't wish he would embrace the, the brand book so closely because I could have given Charlie a break on this thing. And I mean, because I think the damage that you, Scotty, and me and and Jack and a number of other people, uh, Bill Tonelli uh, at Slate. I mean, I think we really cut the legs out from under this book after it's, you know, it's it's a highfalutin release. Uh, and the New York Film Festival back in late September of last year. I mean, this book was like the god of all movies 
when it first came out. And then when the stories came out about how inaccurate it was and what garbage it was, uh, that's when, you know, I think that's when that movie started to become diminished. I, yeah. I, I don't think it's, do you think it's going to win any Oscars? No. Um, I mean, if you're judging by previous award shows leading up to it, it, it doesn't look good. The odds right. aren't in their favor. I, I agree with you. I agree I'm just wondering. I mean, and I, I don't think, I mean, I say, hey, make my, like I said, I've said, I'm on the record everywhere saying, you know, great cinema, bad history. So make all the money that you can. But to reward this film with um, with the glory of Oscars and things, I think that would be really, it would be sort of like acquitting uh, Donald Trump for uh, obstruction of justice. <laughs> yeah. I, I, oh, I think that, that. I yeah, think that's all, all this. I'm sure there's probably at least 10 or 12 scripts lined up for Pacino, De Niro, Pesci. That, that, that was the one that was the most, you know, intriguing that they could go with. They're the most. Oh, De Niro was, De Niro was thrilled about it. I mean, listen, the guy who was really at the epicenter of this thing was Eric Sean from Fox News. Who's and... now done a complete 180. Who did? Who has exactly, Scotty? He did a complete 180. There was no greater fan of the Sharon Brandt book than Scott than Eric when he first introduced us. Eric came out. He came to me in 2004, and he asked me to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Give me the book, which had a uh, you know there was an injunction on it and um, and uh, a very a hard release date, and then he wanted to interview me on camera about what I thought, and I said I thought it was a terrific book. I thought there was some great stuff in it, but you know we had to separate fact from fiction because this guy didn't commit any of these big time murders like Gallo, like Bergoglio, like Hoffa. Yeah. And so, um, but it was Eric who was responsible for getting the book in Robert De Niro's hands. And if not for Eric, Charlie Brand's book really wouldn't have been much of a blip uh, because of all the errors in the book. And, um, and, uh, and, and De Niro's movie, uh, Scorsese's movie, uh, I heard you, uh, excuse me, The Irishman, never would have come out. One last and question, Dan. So, yeah. Sorry to, to interrupt. How much trouble did you have publishing interference? Like, was there a, a major battle? There was a, there was a pro, My publisher was very supportive of me. Uh, I had gotten, I had only gotten a $50,000 advance on it. And it was after I had written, uh, I, there, was a, there, was a, there was a very flashy magazine here in Washington, very classy, you know, ad filled Mercedes uh, ads. And, you know, it was called Regardies Magazine. And they had paid me $10,000 to write a cover story about the NFL and the mob, which I did. And that was in the aftermath of the Frontline story. And then on the basis of that, I got what was a very disappointing advance, which was $50,000 to do the, the interference book. And I came out with that book pretty quickly in 1989. And um, I, the trouble I had was at, after the book came out, I had um, I expected the reviews to be hostile, especially when they were written by sports guys. But there were certain publications where you expect they're going to be fair. And one of them is the New York Times. I'm a creation of the New York Times. The New York Times invented me as an author. This article they wrote about me on June 29, 1978, I considered to be my birth certificate. <laughs> and um, it, um, the New York Times really, this newspaper that created me just destroyed me with this review that he had done by a sports writer who had been covering the NFL uh, for like 30 years, longer than he had been married to his wife. And he had, uh, he claimed that I said, I uh, said things I never said, claimed that I didn't say things that were right there in black and white in the book and drew all kinds of conclusions as a result of that. So I called him and I said, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, 
with respect, you really made a lot of mistakes in this review. I want a retraction, and here's why. He said, geez, I, I can't retract. I, I can't retract it. And so I lawyered up, and uh, we asked for corrections. Uh, and um, they said no. And so I, um, I sent him a letter to the editor noting my, my problems with this review. And uh, um, they uh, refused to publish my letter. So I committed the ultimate heresy as an investigative journalist, hired a lawyer and a, well, a team of lawyers, actually, and, um, and it committed the her- heresy of uh, filing a libel suit against the New York Times, which lasted longer than World War II. We had that case won. We had it won. And then the United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, the second most powerful court in the land, um, came out and reversed our victory under the most bizarre of circumstances, an unprecedented moment in American jurisprudence. And uh, that's where I had the problem. That book basically didn't see much of the light of day. It had a life of about a month and a half, I think, before uh, it was utterly destroyed. And then uh, we found then there was a book that came out in 1992, I think it was, and it was called Alien Inc. It was about the FBI's war on freedom on on uh, freedom of expression, and it talked about how authors and um, and their published works, if the subject, the content was at odds with what the FBI believed, particularly when J. Edgar Hoover was FBI director, that they would they would destroy the book and they would sabotage the authors and everything else. Now, J. Edgar Hoover died in 72. My book came out in 1989. But according to this book that was written by Natalie Robbins, uh, whose husband was the top book critic at the New York Times, Christopher Lehman Hawk, um, she wrote. Uh, he, she wrote that after after Hoover died in 1972, where there were 15 books that were still targeted by the FBI's uh, sabotage squad, I and that. Um, totally the last that. book that was reviewed in 1989 was Interference by Danny Maldea. Wow. And then the person who ran the investigation, I called him up because I wanted the documents that were associated with that. He, of course, could have given them to me, so I f- ran a Freedom of Information Act. The guy who ran the investigation of me was a name Milt Aldrich. And uh, so Milt Aldrich uh, refused to give me the documents, so I filed an FOIA, and I was stunned to see how closely these guys got into me, how the, I was being followed around. And uh, interviews that I was doing were being uh, transcribed, blah, 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 blah. And then when Warren Welsh resigns as, as, uh, or retires as, as NFL director of security, he, they were looking for a replacement. And out of the thousands of well-qualified people the NFL had to choose from, the person they chose was Milt Aldrich, the guy who ran the FBI's <laughs> investigation of me. And... Um, and that told me a lot about the NFL. And frankly, I haven't done much with the NFL. My dad was a great football guy at Ohio State. He played for Ohio State. My dad was like my favorite person in the world. And when I went to my dad and I told him in, in or about 1983 that I was going to write a book about the NFL, he looked at me and he said, and, I, you know, my dad was drafted by the Los Angeles Rams and he had a million friends on the Cleveland Browns. And I met all these guys when I was growing up, Dante Lavelle and and um, and and uh, uh, Hank Sauer. And I mean, uh, anyway, I um, dad told me, don't write that goddamn book about the NFL because it's going to break your heart. And it did. What, uh, what's it your was, sense uh, now? Dan? I mean, what, what do you think? I mean, the the it's changed in the sense of the the salaries that the players have now. Um, do you think that there is um, uh, shenanigans going on in the in the absolutely. game today? 
Oh, absolutely. If you're doing if you're doing drugs, if you're still doing cocaine or whatever, I mean, there are very strict rules in the NFL about people who are doing drugs. Now, if you're a dealer and you're supplying one of the players with drugs, you own that player. Wow. You own his career. I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't have to be any money involved. I mean, you know, if you if you're supplying a player with drugs, uh, that is the NFL's worst case nightmare. In fact, that that you got a player who's strung out on drugs, and 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 the, and the player tries to resist the dealer, the person who's supplying him with yeah, the drugs. And the dealer says, "You're going to come work for me now." And I think that that I think there's a couple of instances where that's that's probably happened. Like I said, I have really. Since I wrote my book, Interference, I've done books on the Bob Kennedy murder case. I did a book on the O.J. Simpson case. I did a book on Vince Foster's suicide. I wrote a memoir. I did a book about the Anthony Pelicano wiretapping case out in L.A. And um, I have not returned to the NFL because i got to tell you, I'm snakebit on this thing. The, the, the NFL sports writers, the people who cover the NFL, they are very protective. This is their property. They're very protective of it. And they don't like outsiders of me coming in and messing with their – but I got to tell you, the one guy who really, really got behind me was Keith Oberman at ESPN at the time. He said that Interference was the greatest sports book in the history of the English language. Wow. And, uh, and that was much appreciated. Keith Oberman, as far as I'm concerned, is a man of high integrity uh, with uh, good taste in books. <laughs> well, this was awesome, Dan. I couldn't have asked for a better interview. You, you hit all the marks. You did it all. You said it all. And we, you're always welcome back on the original Gangsters podcast. Yeah, thank, thank you, you guys. Want me? I'm there. And like I said, Scotty Bernstein tells me to jump. I say ha ha. <laughs> That's you. how it works here. I tell everyone that the you know I, I wouldn't be able to do what I do if it wasn't for Dan laying the foundation for for this for this type of investigative research that that I've kind of jumped on board with the last ten years. But well, God da- bless you, Scotty. Hey, see you in Vegas, big guy. We'll Thanks, go Dan. to the D. We'll yes, go the D at, Casino. Uh, at, go to Andiamo uh, uh, and go see Red Derek Fox. Stevens. Andiamo, yes, yeah. Andiamo. I love that place. <laughs> All right, man. Thank See you a lot, guy. Dan. Thanks, Jimmy. Yep. Thank you, Dan. Take Bye-bye. care. All right. For uh, Jimmy Bucciolato and Roberto Boucher, this is Scott Bernstein. We'll see you next time on the Original Gangsters Podcast.